0: This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Fitz for Good.
1: So I was fortunate. I had parents that weren't difficult. I remember when I came home with my failing marks and I showed them to my father. He said to me, "Reese, did you try your best? And I said to him, you know what, I did. And he said to me, well then... That's all I need from you. It's really all I need from you. And as long as you're trying your best, that's really all you need.
0: This is WIT's Impacts for Good, and I'm Eusebius MacKaiser. In this episode, we are introduced to the Re- doctoral research of electrical engineering scholar Rais Dango, who through academic hiccups and failures of his own, he finally found his niche at university, renewable energy. More specifically though, he wanted to tap into the prevalence of energy poverty in households, and finding ways to alleviate this amongst the most vulnerable of South Africans. Rais and his team have spent years trying to find ways to source local solutions to the electricity and larger energy problems that we, as a country, face while keeping costs down and protecting the environment from harm.
1: The best way I can describe engineering would be problem solving. An engineer is someone that finds problem and then seeks a solution and electrical engineering just happens to be finding electrical problems or problems that are related to the topic of electricity or anything electrical that's powered.
0: In this podcast series we engage with WITS originators who through their activism academia and research projects are challenging the way we tackle the world's most pressing issues. When talking about the prevalence of energy poverty in South African households, one looks at the accessibility of households to various sources of energy, the quality of this energy, and ultimately how safe this energy is to use. Over the years, service delivery protests across the country have highlighted the need for the most basic of human rights. As we battle a global pandemic and our ways of working and living have changed, it is this basic right of access to sufficient energy that needs to be addressed in order for communities to thrive and reach their fullest.
2: Well, joining me in this installment of our podcast series is Raees Dango, who is a doctoral student and doing some fascinating engineering work. And I'm looking forward to you getting to know him as well as me. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast series. Uh, thank you, Sebas. It's great to be here. I've developed a curiosity around Intellectual biography is I'm always curious how people come to their subjects. In my case, for example, the last thing you would have expected a working class colored boy from Grahamstown to end up doing is postgraduate studies in philosophy and it just demands to be explained. We usually grow up wanting to be maybe a doctor, maybe a pilot. I wonder whether engineering is one of those things that a boy looks forward to doing. When you were a kid, what did you imagine you'd want to do one day? As a child, I actually
1: had no idea. And throughout my schooling career, I never excelled academically at any particular subject. I remember the principal calling me in and this was in my matric here and he'd go through the marks and ask, you know, what do you expect to get when you matriculate and what you want to do? And funny story, I actually failed life orientation. So he was going through my (laughs) marks. They were around the 60%. I don't think anything was even above 70. And he asked me, so what do you think you're going to get, young man? And for every subject, I said, I'll get a distinction. And then he said to me, I think you need to reevaluate your goals because looking at what they're looking at now, I don't think you can get that. And that, I think that motivated me, you know. So I literally just worked as hard as I could in those final few weeks of matric and ended up scoring seven distinctions. Hmm. And, you know, when they post that very nice newspaper article with the pictures of all the students, hmm. I managed to get into that. And I was the only guy there without an academic blazer. So now with seven distinctions, you know, your, your doors are open. You can do just about anything that you want to at university. And I didn't know what to go into. So I saw biomedical engineering. And the reason why I chose it was because I thought that it covered a a wide spectrum of, of, of topics. So you, you do chemistry, you do biology, you do physics, you do mathematics and i was happy to do that cover a spectrum of things and then at the end of that degree pursue something further maybe by then i'd know my place i continued through biomedical engineering for three years and in my final year the final year you actually do at medical school and you do human anatomy and physiology i failed i failed very badly and i took that year again and i failed again (laughs) you know that lets you thinking now why am i failing it's because i'm stupid And no, it's not. If you find yourself doing something academically and you're not succeeding, that probably means it's not meant for you. And so I changed my focus from the more medical stuff or the biomedical stuff into electrical engineering.
2: Hmm.
1: That's the nice thing about this degree is that you could shift in your third year into electrical engineering. So I then moved into electrical engineering and I was in my third year of electrical engineering. And I failed again. (laughs) So that was my third time failing. But the reason why I failed on the third time was I was still coming to grips with changing my thought process from a very theoretical uh, way of thinking and now to a more logical way of thinking for the engineering subjects. Mm. But once I've gone into my fourth year of engineering, in the fourth year we do a practical course, a laboratory course. And you actually have to now design something and build something like an engineer would. That's where I found my, my flair. And that's where I found where I was really interested in something. And what I found was that, you know, while you're studying your undergrad, you don't know what you enjoy and you don't know what you're good at because everything chows you. Often only once you pass your undergrad and go into the working world, do you actually find your niche, which is what am I good at? And what do I actually enjoy? And for me, that turned out to be, renewable energy, and actually changing the world from a perspective where we can introduce energy systems
2: to have an impact on this major uh, major crisis of energy poverty. That's such a remarkable insight, Rees, and we're going to come to the incredible master's research you've done and your doctoral studies that you're embarking on. But I want to reflect a little bit more on the intellectual biography. With that wonderful thing called 2020 hindsight, if you reflect now on the way schools are set up and the way undergraduate programs are built the world over traditionally in terms of the history of universities and the academy in general, do you think that we need to redesign them? Imagine how many more races out there did not apply themselves in the final weeks and got seven distinctions, did not change courses after failing the first time in third year and took it to be a definitive indication that I am useless, that I am not capable of a career that can be developed within the academic space. And yet it may just be that the way in which we've designed teaching, which I know is a passion of yours and it's part of your doctoral studies and we'll we'll focus on that in a moment, but it goes all the way back to school, doesn't it? I mean, there are countless children who would have fallen yes. through the cracks, not because of a lack of intrinsics, but because the system favors certain category of kids and not others. I agree with you, Eusebius.
1: So I was fortunate that I had parents that weren't difficult. I remember when I came home with my failing marks and I showed them to my father. He said to me, Reese, did you try your best? And I said to him, you know what? I did. I, I genuinely tried my best. And he said to me, well, then, that's all I need from you. That's really all I need from you. And as long as you're trying your best, that's really all you need. So that open my eyes to think that, you know what, if I'm trying my best and not succeeding, let's change parts. So mm. the way our system, to address that, the way our system is configured, I do believe that we need to change this. And not just the education system, but also the way that parents influence and motivate their children. Mm. I know in Indian households, it's, it's optimal for the child to become a doctor. You know, and they, they push for you to pursue that career, become a doctor because it, 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 what comes with it. But no, we need to change our entire thought process and our approach mm. to how we motivate our kids, what we expose them to. And this must come from a very early stage of the education, mm. from primary school. You know, in China, they actually... Introduce children to, to software and to coding from the time they're in primary school. We don't have things like that here in South Africa. Right. And we need to build on that. We need to look at innovative technologies that are coming up and introduce them into our education systems. And it's great that, okay, I, I don't mean this, <laughs> I say it's great that the COVID 19 pandemic happened. Because it's forced our society and it's forced our educational institutions into a corner where they now have no choice but to explore new methods of teaching, explore new ways to get through to their students. And now they're realizing that these old methods of teaching have actually been failing us. You know, uh, it was John Dewey who said that if we teach our children of today as we taught our children of yesterday, we rob them of tomorrow what can we actually do to motivate our students who are the future of our country, of our world, to get them to think, Mm. you know, what is it that I want to do? Where do I want to end up? Mm. And not not give them this very one-tracked goal, you know, you need to get a degree, you need to get a job, you need to go and work. No, no, keep it more open for them. Let them decide. Show them the ways
2: and let them then go ahead and decide. Before we get into the particularities of your research, let's talk about the broad discipline you fall within. To those who do not know or think they know or are scared to admit they don't completely know, what is engineering and how is electrical engineering a subset of the broader discipline? The best way I can describe engineering would be
1: problem solving. An engineer is someone that finds a problem and then seeks a solution and electrical engineering just happens to be finding electrical problems or problems that are related to the topic of electricity or anything
2: electrical that's powered. So it's fundamentally practical. It takes practical problems, yes. disaggregates them, try and understand their nature, and try and come up with solutions. Correct. That, that's the best way to look at an engineer. What about the methodology, is When it comes to maths, for example... One of the things as a philosophy student that fascinated me about how creativity worked, I remember reading a really cool paper as a graduate student about the nature of creativity. But in a sense, the paper, looking back at it now with more mature eyes, although it mesmerized me, the paper didn't actually go very far in trying to make sense of creativity. It reached a, a skeptical conclusion. And the conclusion it basically reached, this was a philosopher at the University of Reading, Galen Strawson, is that there's something fundamentally indeterminate about how creativity works in the sense that you focus your mind, you focus your mind, you're busy with that maths puzzle that you're trying to solve for to get your seventh distinction in the trick, and voila, the answer pops out at you. But we we don't fully understand the mechanism between the focus and the answer, quote-unquote, popping into your head when it comes to engineering, is it easier to describe and to learn methods or is there also a fundamental creativity at work when you're trying to solve for the electrical problems that you, that you are working on? I'd say that there's fundamental
1: creativity. So, yes, there is a method that you can follow, a procedure, to reach your final answer. But as they say, there's many roads that lead to the same destination. And we, uh, through my tutoring, because I I also tutor the first year students, I'm one of the demonstrators, and I get to interact with the different students and see how they think. And often it's not all the same. So you'll get a student that will approach a a question or approach something from a completely different perspective that even I would have never thought of. Mm -hmm. And that gives me inspiration to be like, wow, you know, here's a first year student who's thinking out of the box. And he's finding a new way to solve a specific problem. So yes, there is that rigorous approach, that methodology that anyone can follow. But there is also that opportunity to be creative and to find your own way
2: to solve the problem. A big issue that you focused on in your master's research is energy poverty. What is energy poverty? Best way to describe it is
1: if you want to do any task that requires energy, for example, cooking or charging your cell phone, watching TV, or even basic lighting provision. Those are all tasks that require energy. Now, if you don't have the energy to accomplish that task, or if you have the energy and your energy is not good enough, Mm -hmm. we'll we'll unpack what I mean by good enough in a second. Then you can say, okay, I'm now energy poor. Mm -hmm. And there are frameworks out there that you can use to actually measure your level of energy access. And you can see that, you know, if I don't have enough energy access, I would then be classified as energy poor. Mm. Now, one thing that I must stress is that don't think of energy poverty as being, I don't have electricity. Mm. You know, there's a difference now between electricity and energy. Electricity is just a form of energy that we use. And people think that, okay, my electricity comes from ESCOM, but if you have a solar panel inverter battery system, that also makes electricity. Mm. That's another supply of electricity. Now you can take your two supplies, ESCOM and your solar panel. You can compare the two, see which one can accomplish the most tasks. Mm. Well, because of its high capacity, ESCOM can power up quite a bit more than your solar panel can. But then we looked at other aspects of your energy supply, such as, reliability. Now, reliability talks about planned interruptions. And we have very famous planned interruptions here in South Africa. That's load shedding. Then we look at something like availability. Now, availability, you might think, isn't that the same as reliability? Is it available? Can I use it? But no, we actually have to distinguish the two here. Availability looks at unplanned interruptions. Then we go on to quality. Quality of electricity is measured according to the voltage. So, can I actually use this electricity supply to do my energy-consuming tasks? Mm. My brother just mentioned to me now that in Mayfair uh, yesterday, City Power was supplying them with 360 volts, mm. which means that anything they connected was going to blow up. That means that that electricity supply is not of good quality. Mm. That also now attributes to it being energy poor. Mm. Then we can look at safety. Is your energy supply safe enough to use? <laughs> we look at legality. You know, If you have an easy New York connection, is, is that safe? Or are there other illegal connections in the area which causes you to trip? So now when we look at all these various attributes of energy, we can then see that energy poverty is a multifaceted concept and that's why when we measure energy poverty, we need a multidimensional indicator. Mm. Now, those are very really big words. Basically, what it boils down to is there's a lot that goes into determining whether or not you are energy poor. Yeah. And we have to explore all of that. Mm. Because the Department of Energy have tried to measure energy poverty here in South Africa. And one way that they've done it is rate of electrification. So who has an s connection or a utility connection and who doesn't? Mm. Now that's a very good proxy or way to go about measuring whether or not someone's energy poor. Because mm. say you're your house is completely off-grid. Yeah, so, so let's say you've got an off-grid system and you run completely without a utility connection. Mm. According to that rate of electrification, you are energy poor, but you're not because you know you've got your off-grid system. Mm. So when we when we unpack energy poverty and we try and measure it and try and actually fix it, because it's a problem, when we try and fix it, we have to look at it from all these different
2: dimensions and perspectives so that we can come up with a proper solution. That's absolutely beautiful because what that tells me from an analytic point of view, which also speaks to the problem-solving skill set that an engineering student acquires, that they can presumably also apply in other areas of their life and that's a transferable skill. That is a a reason why engineering students often end up in other parts of the economy. I had many engineering colleagues in a management consulting company that I worked for because the general problem-solving skill then becomes transferable. But what it also suggests to me is that before we can talk about solutions, you need to understand the nature of the problem comprehensively and in totality. And if you don't, your interventions might not work. Now, I wanna talk about your doctoral work, but before I do so, even on your comprehensive definition of energy, poverty, and what that means, there's still a correlation broadly between certain classical inequalities in South Africa and energy insecurity and energy poverty. Rural areas are often not part of the main grid. And even if they have other sources of energy like biomass, they still struggle compared to those of us who live, say, in big cities like Johannesburg. In a minute or two, explain to listeners of this podcast what you were trying to solve for in the rural areas and what creative spark, pardon the pun, uh, you managed to actually achieve. <laughs> okay, Servius, it might be a bit more than two minutes. <laughs> Go let's for take, it. Let's take a crack at
1: this. Right? Now take us all the way back to 1994, the dawn of democracy in South Africa. Uh, the electrification rate in South Africa was around 3-4%. And the infrastructure that we had, which was built during the apartheid time, it was never envisioned to supply the majority of the nation. That's the fact. ASCOM then started going about electrifying uh, our country. And they assumed that if we are to connect someone to the electrical grid, build the infrastructure required, it would cost 2000 Rand. They also assumed that within a year, this person that we connect to the electricity grid is going to consume 350 kilowatt hours of electricity. So that was ASCOM's business model which turned out to be wrong. In fact, to connect someone to the electricity grid, because of how our communities are scattered, you know, we have populations that are all over the place in rural areas, it actually costed three and a half thousand rand on average to connect our household to the grid. You know, this is 1,500 rand more. And then it turned out that instead of using 350 kilowatt hours a month, people were only using 100 kilowatt hours. So it costed them a lot more to connect people to the grid. And the assumption that people were going to be using a lot of electricity was wrong. They were actually using much less. Hmm. And that's where Eskom's business model failed. And it was in 1999 or 2000 where municipalities had already started defaulting on their payments and Ascom was already in a couple of billions worth of debt. So it all started back then. But that didn't stop them. They didn't stop our country and ESCOM from continuing to electrify people in our country. And the 34% electrification rate in 1994, if we now look at 2018, they've done a phenomenal job. We now have 87% of our country electrified. We still have 2.2 million households that don't have access to the utility grid. But we need to also take into consideration that there's been phenomenal growth in number of households that have popped up over the years. I think it's a growth rate of 4% per year, and that makes it difficult for us to reach everybody. Now, the way that ESCOM electrifies, uh, it's based on something called centralized generation. Now, centralized generation, to put it simply, is you have this massive power plant that generates a hell of a lot of electricity and you have a vast transmission network, high voltage lines, and this transmits it and it eventually you know, reaches the point of use, which is very far away from the actual point of generation. Now centralized generation, though it boasts uh, a very high capacity, it's very costly to actually build the infrastructure. Now let's look at Africa as a whole and mm. the electrification of Africa. You can take entire countries, Europe, Germany, Italy, Greece, you know, you can pop them into Africa and they won't even touch a high voltage line. Now, when you look at the world map, that doesn't become very apparent because, you know, the way it's drawn, America looks ginormous, Europe looks big, but they're actually very small. These people who call themselves the developed world, they've got these solutions, centralized generation. That's how they did it. Mm. And they now want to come into Africa and they want to do the same. And Africa is a very wealthy continent and they extract the wealth from Africa and they take it back to their place. And that's why I say that we cannot follow in their footsteps. We cannot follow in the developed world's footsteps. Mm. We, as they refer to us as the undeveloped, we need to find solutions for our own problems. We need solutions from Africa for Africa.
2: So What's an example of that, Ray, is how do we, in some areas, go off-grid, sustainable, and we still have quality sources of energy? Can we have our cake and eat it? Yes, we can. And that's
1: exactly what I've done with, or not what I've done, but what our team has done during my master's research, is we've developed a solution from Africa, for Africa, for electrifying. And it goes against this whole centralized generation paradigm we've shifted over to a distributed generation paradigm. And the way it works is that we actually want to generate power at the point of use versus at a power station and then transmit it all across Africa. We generate at the point of use, and this makes these type of systems much easier to roll out because there's no infrastructure that needs to be built. And because there's no infrastructure at the moment, we can introduce these new and innovative technologies at a fundamental level here in Africa and we can actually lead the way for a paradigm shift from what the developed world considers the norm and the nice thing about that is our methods can be sustainable their methods are not sustainable how many planet earths does it on average does an american family use something like six so they're going down a path to extinction and they want to take us with them and i say no We need to come up with our own solutions for our problems. We understand the African context better than anybody else because we live here. At
2: the point of use, what would be the
1: source of energy that one would then use to fuel? So for the solution that we've come up with, we've chosen to go about using renewable energy sources. And I think that's the way forward for Africa, is to go renewable. I do think that fossil fuels are on their way out. I mean, the environmental impact that it's causing to our planet... And it's not viable, it's not feasible. We need to be sustainable. So we need to look at sustainable solutions. And that means that we have to then look at renewable
2: energy. Does it also come out favorably on a price point comparison? If we look at specifically solar photovoltaics and you
1: compare that to fossil fuels, I will say yes. The price of solar photovoltaics, because of the new demand, the increase in demand, they've seen a drastic drop. Uh, a couple of years ago, you'd be paying around 15 rand per watt for a solar panel, and now you can even get a solar panel for about 4 rands per watt. So the price of solar photovoltaics is dropping considerably, and that means that it should be having a much bigger impact, mm-hmm. and it has. In recent years, um, recent, I mean, between 2016 to 2019, we've seen the biggest impact of solar photovoltaics in Africa, where 270 million Households have benefited from improved energy access because of solar photovoltaics. That is amazing. So yes, if we're looking at it from a cost point of view, we're heading in that direction. I wouldn't want to say that, okay, right now, yes, go for it. It, It's cheaper, but no, no, we're heading in that direction. Mm -hmm. And we need to continue heading in that direction, keep the ball rolling, keep developing new innovation,
2: rolling it out and changing the world. Final question, Ray is and this is the basis for a future podcast, but I want you to just point a picture in that direction. COVID nineteen has also forced us to think about the dangers of many children being left behind as a result of remote learning. We've framed that to mean we had better make sure every child and every student has a laptop and has access to data. But your PhD research points us to another important factor. You also need electricity and If we have energy poverty, that too can exacerbate educational outcomes and that we shouldn't only think about remote learning and online learning in terms of reducing inequality but putting pressure on service providers to allow everyone to have access to data or even to a piece of technology. Speak to me about how important energy poverty is in relation to the conversation when it comes to remote learning. Well, the way I look at it is... Eusebius is you
1: give me a laptop and you give me a modem but you don't give me the electricity to power it so there we go I can't do any remote learning or online education yes so we have to address it logically and logically the first thing you need to address is energy access once you solve the energy access problem you can then solve the education problem and similarly to how we can paradigm shift access to electricity with distributed generation uh, solutions. We can revolutionize education in Africa if we were to go online with our education, because there's also a phenomenal amount of students and children in Africa that are not being educated, that are not going to school because they they don't have access to education. So maybe online education is the solution to that. And COVID-19 has shown us that we have the capability to do it. Yes, we gave the laptops, and we gave students data. And now I'm the guy who's looking at how do we now give them the power for those laptops and for that to actually use that data Absolutely,
2: Grace, your work is absolutely phenomenal. I am in awe of your exhibition of problem-solving, logical thinking, and how critical it is also for us to rethink the curriculum itself. I look forward to engaging you in these topics in some shape or another in future on different platforms. I thank you in this podcast series for introducing ourselves to the excellent work you've been doing as a VIT University doctoral student. Thank you so much. I appreciate it,
0: Eusebius. This impacts for good podcast series with seven or two was brought to you by Vitz
2: for good.
0: This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by FITS for good. What is energy poverty?
1: Best way to describe it is if you want to do any task that requires energy, for example, cooking or charging your cell phone, watching TV or even basic lighting provision. Those are all tasks that require energy. Now, if you don't have the energy to do accomplish that task, or if you have the energy and your energy is not good enough, then you can say, okay, I'm now energy poor. Mm -hmm. And there are frameworks out there that you can use to actually measure your level of energy access. And you can see that, you know, if I don't have enough energy access, I would then be classified as energy poor. Now, one thing that I must stress is that Don't think of energy poverty as being, I don't have electricity. Mm. You know, there's a difference now between electricity and energy. Electricity is just a form of energy that we use. And people think that, okay, my electricity comes from ESCOM. But if you have a solar panel inverter battery system, that also makes electricity. Now you can take your two supplies, ESCOM and your Solar panel, you can compare the two, see which one can accomplish the most tasks.